Welcome to Moments with Marianne. I'm so delighted we're spending this time here today. We have a very inspirational show coming right up. Our first guest today is Dr. Carlene Stangy, and she's here today to talk to us about her new book, The Spiritual Nature of Animals. Now, Dr. Carlene always knew she wanted to be an animal doctor, even before she knew the word veteran. And today she's incorporated acupuncture, traditional Chinese medicine, and nutritional therapy into her Rocky Mountain practice. So let's welcome to the show, Dr. Carlene. Thank you, Marianne. Hey, it's such a privilege to have you here, and what an amazing book. I mean, you've done some research for this. I have. I covered some territory. <laughs> really did. You sure did. And, you know, so and why don't we start with the beginning? I mean, how long have you been interested in being an animal doctor? Oh, since I was a little kid, since I was about seven years old. And everybody told me I couldn't because I was a girl. They don't let girls be veterinarians. Wouldn't you like to be a secretary or a nurse? That's what the guidance counselor asked me. I said no. Fortunately, my mother said I could do whatever I wanted, so I listened well, to her. That's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, then, and thank goodness it did because look at the path it set you on. Right. Yes, it's been amazing. I Just follow your heart. You do what you want to do. I, I've spoken to many grade schoolers, high schoolers, junior high, and told them, you know, you can do whatever you want. People are going to tell you you can't do it. But if you keep trying, it might not be easy, but if you keep after it, you can do it. So Mm -hmm. they like to hear that. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, just in general. I mean, so what started you on this whole path of trying to look at the spirituality of animals? What what brought well, that I was, curiosity up? I was being a ambulatory horse doctor driving a pickup truck on mostly dirt roads, 100 miles a day, going from ranch to ranch, treating horses and llamas and so on, and uh, it's very stressful, really long hours, hard work, uh, pays okay, but it's not great. And um, very, you know, it's a lot of death and, and gore in veterinary medicine. It's, it can be really disturbing. And so I was pretty stressed out. And then I had um, a lot of clients that had really varied views about what happens to an animal when it dies. For example, I had a Buddhist client who had taken a vow, the first precept, to not kill. So her old dog needed to die, but she couldn't help it. She couldn't euthanize it. She wanted me to help it die without euthanasia. And so I finally decided to stop giving it prednisone, take it off the mm-hmm. prednisone medication that was keeping it alive, and it died overnight. So that worked out okay. Then I had a born-again Baptist woman who hired me to euthanize her old horse, and she told me how her husband had died a few years before. And so when I killed the horse, I said, well, now the horse and your husband are together. And she screeched at me and said, no, they're not. My husband's in heaven, and that horse is just dead. I said, well, where'd the energy go that was just there? I don't know. It's just gone, she said, and she started quoting Bible verses. Well, I can quote Bible verses, too, so we had a really long, interesting discussion. <laughs> it was really fun, you know, and part of uh-huh. happy terms, but um, <laughs> it made me wonder, what is the spiritual nature of animals? Do they reincarnate like the Buddhist thought? She thought, you know, she, this dog has to suffer its karma in this life, so it has a better incarnation in its next life, and the Baptists thought it was just meat. And so I had to, I, I just, I couldn't let it go. I, I wanted to know. And then I read Carolyn Mace's book, Anatomy of the Spirit, and I thought somebody needs to do this 
similar thing about animals. And so I just mm-hmm. set off on this adventure, and man, 20 years later, <laughs> still loving it. <laughs> well, and I'm sure it's such a journey as you're going along because you do come up against such different opinions and points of view and religious beliefs. So for each patient that you see and each animal that you see, it's, it's got to be you know, a, a very interesting journey. It is, and, you know, nobody wants to talk to people about this. You know, they'll either say animals don't have souls, don't worry about it, or they don't need to suffer, put them down. Or, I mean, I've heard all kinds of different things. So they come to the veterinarian to talk. That's, mm-hmm. who, that's their psychologist right now when they're suffering about the loss of, an, of a beloved companion. Nobody's, their friends are saying, oh, you should put that dog down. And they're like, but he's still happy to see me. He's still eating. Why should I, you know? And so, yeah. you know, we end up counseling people for weeks, months, years even. And so we end up, you know, we really don't have the education to do that either. And so I think this book is going to be really helpful for other veterinarians because it covers all the major religious beliefs and and they can talk to people. I enjoy talking to people about their different religious beliefs. I don't care what they are. I, you know, let's let's go where you feel we need to go and talk about your animal and how how to make it some people want to let them die naturally and and other people are horrified by that but it's like that's okay with me if that works for you we'll take good care of them some people think they need to be used you know i let them decide so there's no wrong answer when it comes to that i don't think there really is you know i mean as long as you're not cruel you know yeah. as long as the person that loves the animal is making the decision on their behalf I'm supportive. That's my job. Mm-hmm. Well, and so during all the time, that, because I know, I mean, you know, we animals, they, they don't live as long as we do. They come to the time when they're supposed to pass, you know. And, and so when you were starting to dig into what is an animal's soul and what does that look like, what were some of the things that you came across? Well, uh, one of my favorite things is when the Jehovah's Witness came to my door, and I said, mm-hmm. come on in, tell me what you believe about this. And they gave me the most wonderful Bible verse. It comes from Ecclesiastes 3.19. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the argument is is that animals don't have eternal spirits because only Adam received the breath of life from God at creation, and the animals did not. And I'm going, yeah. but the animals breathe and have life, so... Uh, who gave him the breath of life if God didn't do it? Well, Ecclesiastes 3.19 says, There is an eventuality as respects the sons of mankind, and eventuality as respects the beasts. And they have the same eventuality. As the one dies, so the other dies. And they all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. This is a sermon on vanity, and the verse before that says that God is testing man to show him that he too is a beast. So we aren't any better spiritually. That's what the Bible says. We're the same. That was huge for me. Yeah, because it kind of connects the dots on on your journey in learning more about this. Right, and for Buddhists, all beings have Buddha nature. All sentient Mm -hmm. beings have have the, the eternal spirit, if you want to call it. And this is the other thing I've learned, is that all the religions are trying to say the same thing. They're trying to explain the unexplainable. 
using different vocabulary from different cultures, different symbols. I don't know if you've ever heard of the book Proof of Heaven by neurosurgeon Dr. Eben Alexander. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And he compared, he, he, had a, he had a brain infection and his, he was brain mm-hmm. dead, so his brain didn't create what he saw. And he says that he compared his experience to what it would be like if an ant were a human for a day and then went back to tell the other ants about it. They wouldn't understand. And so I don't think we're humans are fully capable of understanding spiritual realm. And so we have all these metaphors and stories and things to try to help us understand. And when you look at them all together, you go, oh, my goodness, science is saying the same thing as Hinduism, as Buddhism, as the Bible. Holy cow, they're all saying the same thing in different language. That's, that's comforting to me, too. Mm-hmm. Well, and and it's got a you know especially because you work around animals so much, you know there that's the work you do. You see them day in day out. It's nice mm-hmm. to be able to make sense of it all. Mm-hmm. I now see them as eternal spiritual beings. You mm-hmm. know because science says energy is neither created nor destroyed. So at sudden death, what happened to that energy? It had to go somewhere, right? So oh. where? So that's what I wanted to find out. Where does it go? So talking to shamans who, who travel to spirit realm and what they say that an animal can appear as a human or vice versa. They say so many interesting things. It, it's been really fascinating. I've so enjoyed this. Oh, I'm sure you have. Now, have you come across, because I know there is discussion when we lose an animal, sometimes they'll reincarnate and an animal will get again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, I'm told that animals reincarnate, reincarnate quickly, that it's easy to get an animal body. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, and I have a number of clients who believe that their animal is their same previous companion. And I also, so Tibetan Buddhists and Hindus believe that a human can reincarnate as an animal. And I was um, learning Tibetan Buddhism, and I was visiting Lama Saltamaliani at Taramanda, mm-hmm. Caramandala near Pagosa Springs, Colorado, and I was sitting in her living room having tea, and her cat jumped on the table next to me, and I was scratching his neck, and he was really enjoying it. And she said, wow, he really likes you. I said, he's a lover. She said, he's my father. Oh. <laughs> a, Tibetan, a Tibetan lama who read incarnations had told mm-hmm. her that her former father reincarnated as her cat. She called him Pops. So... You know, I don't know, but it's fun to imagine. Oh, my goodness. So I have a little more respect now, and um, mm-hmm. I, I talk to them more like, you know, this is someone I'm going to know forever. This is a spiritual energy that is part of my energy. We are all just one giant recycling vat of energy and physical matter. That's what the pagans believe. That's what, you know, that's what science says. It doesn't go anywhere. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. So, you know, water, ice melts into water, evaporates as steam, and then condenses into water and freezes again. Nothing is ever completely destroyed. It just changes form. So I'm starting to see everything as being me and part of me and a reflection of me and an eternal friend. So it's... uh, it's great to meet so many wonderful animals. 
Mm-hmm. And it and it puts things in a place where everything, you know, how Einstein said, every, either everything's a miracle or it's not. I'm like butchering the quote, but anyway, but it's it's either we can see everything as being a miracle in in like the animals that we're with, and then we're connected with everything as well. I mean, you can see how that connection runs all the way. It does. And, you know, the only stepping stone that we have to take is a little bit of a change in perspective. You know, the human condition is the dual, you know, the duality thing, good, bad, good, evil, right, wrong. And, you know, the other beings aren't hung up in that so much. That's something that separated us as the Garden of Eden, as an example, and many of Mm -hmm. the other religions talk about we kind of got separated from spirit realm due to duality, due to that mindset of ours. Now, the Hindus and Buddhists talk about equanimity, which is dropping that duality. Don't make all these judgments. Who said it? Jesus, don't judge. Thich Nhat Hanh, Zen Buddha, said don't judge. A clairvoyant told me, judgment is pain. Don't judge the situation. And when you start to realize how much pain you cause yourself by judging, it, you want to you want to stop because it hurts and so i'm trying to do that desperately but that equanimity is not having mental judgment all the time and just seeing everything is equal and that is your freedom that is your connection to spirit realm that's quieting that mind that just makes you crazy all the time so during your experience and all of your travels have you come to believe that animals go to heaven definitely Definitely. Uh, you know, if you want to call it heaven, whatever you can, you know, they go to spirit realm. There is a realm beyond non-physical. They go beyond our physical, visual, physical. So 5% of the universe is visual matter. Mm-hmm. That's what science tells us. So the rest of it is where you go, okay? <laughs> and so whatever, you want to call it whatever you want. But like yeah. even Alexander, when, when he was in his spirit realm, the spirit world that he visited, he saw a dog, and many other near-death reports describe animals mm-hmm. in heaven. And the Bible, you know, there's animals in Revelation. There's, there's animals, animals everywhere. You know, and they talk about a new heaven and a new earth. That's what that Buddhist woman told me. She, she, after we were talking, she goes, I said, do you believe in reincarnation? She said, no, that's when you come back as an animal. And I said, well, not necessarily. She says, there will be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, and body and soul will be reunited. I said, that sounds like reincarnation. And so, you know, and and so when God created Adam, he surrounded him with animals. When God saved Noah from the flood, he surrounded him with animals. When Jesus Mm -hmm. was born, he surrounded him with animals. So don't you think there's going to be new animals? I mean, it says right in Isaiah or wherever that, um, you know, the lamb will lie down with the lion and, you know, it's going to be paradise again. So there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We just keep going. Yeah, and the animals are going to be there. <laughs> Absolutely. Our buddies, you know, they may not look the same, but they're going to be those those energetic connections that you have with your buddy. That's eternal. That love never ends. The Bible says that too. Love never ends. So if you have a strong love connection with a being, that isn't going to stop. Yeah, and, and just like when people have that, you know, strong love connection with an animal, you know, it, it doesn't end either, whether it's a human or, or an animal, you know, because the thing is, is that it just will continue. 
Right. And the near-death reports say that, you know, they come back with a lesson, and it's always we need to love and help each other. And that's mm-hmm. totally what the animals do. I had this client in my office one day. He's an 85-year-old man probably, and his dog is 15-year-old husky, and he said to me, what am I going to do when this dog dies? When I walk my dog, people talk to me. I, oh, my gosh, dog, you got to keep going here. <laughs> I mean, it's, these animals are so important, not only as mm-hmm. companions, but as exercise, social life, work, play. You know, they permeate every aspect of your life. And we just need to be really grateful to them. So at the moment of death, I like to, people get very upset and emotional at the moment of death, but I, I like people to take a moment and think about what an important moment that is. It's like birth. Okay, so it's special. Wouldn't you like to just be calm and hold the animal and tell them how much you love them and forgive them for anything you were angry about and apologize for anything you did that hurt their feelings and send them off in a in a blaze of pure white light and love? And that's what I'd rather see people do rather than crying. And I mean, yes, it's sad, but sh- oh, just savor that moment. It's mm-hmm. special. Well, and so is it your belief at the core of all religions are kind of saying the same thing when it is in regards to animals? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, not only, you know, comparing us to being an ant, but there's many other stories. There's one from the Sioux Nation, and they talk about jumping mouse. And mice can't see very far. And, but the frog gave him frog medicine, and he jumped. And when he jumped, he saw Sacred Mountain. And then he said, i gotta, I got to go there. i got to go there. So he headed out to Sacred Mountain on this big, long journey, encountered all kinds of animals. And he, he met a buffalo that was dying, but he could save him by giving him his eye. They met another animal that was dying, and he could save him by giving him his, his eye. Well, now he was blind, but an eagle came and ate him. Mm. And then he woke up. And he could see everything for miles, right? And so yeah. we have a mouse perspective down here. we got little bitty mouse perspective. We think we know everything and we're right about everything, and we don't know nothing compared to what there is to know. And so giving up our limited perspective is what that meant when he gave away his eyes. And then you're reborn in the spirit realm. So then you can see it all. So I do believe that all these religions are trying to explain something that is just really hard to understand for us because of our mouse perspective. Well, I know my dog goes to a dog park every time he's dreaming because he's running around with his tail's wagging, he's barking at somebody. (laughs) When he's dreaming? Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, I heard for years that animals are not conscious. And oh, so you really? watch him dream. Mm-hmm. A dream state's a mm-hmm. conscious state. So what are you talking about here? Yeah, Plus I can make him unconscious. doesn't even make sense, you know? No, no. And I can make him unconscious with anesthesia. So what? There's supposed to be some special kind of consciousness that humans have that animals don't have. They're they're backing off on this. But for decades, you could not. No scientist could publish anything on animal cognition or. Um, you know, anything like that. My book, you know, it's a good thing I worked on it for 20 years because now it's acceptable to talk about this. For many years it was not. It was taboo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's because people really didn't understand what that is all about or even come to an understanding because there's, yeah. you've got so many different religions and belief systems and just, 
it's a very emotional time, especially when an animal's having to pass. So for people to really kind of consider that, you know, they have to take a lot into, you know, there's a lot of thought that has to go into all of that. There is. You know, people ask me all the time, how do you know when? How do you know when? You know, and so I, I talk to them about really communicating with the animal. The animals are excellent communicators. A woman told me yesterday how she was sitting in the sun in her chair, and her cat came up to her, and she thought, do you want to sit on my lap? And the cat didn't jump up, but then the cat put her paws up on the chair and then pushed her with his head. It's like, get out of my chair. <laughs> the cat wanted the chair. <laughs> I mean, they're really good communicators. They'll let you know. Oh, yeah. And so oh, cats just, especially. <laughs> yeah, if you just pay attention, and it's hard because you're emotional and you're worried mm-hmm. and all these emotions get in the way, but if you can just sit quietly with them and make a heart connection with their heart and ask them, and in meditation is the best because your mind is quiet, and just ask, you know, what do you want? A woman told me just the other day, she said, I asked my dog if she wanted to come and visit you or the other vet, and she went over to her pills from the other vet. And I'm like, great. She told you. The pills help her. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you just ask and are quiet and pay attention, you will know. They will tell you. Well, and on that note, I mean, a lot of times, you know, and I've met a a lot of very gifted and maybe some not so gifted um, animal communicators. Yeah. And so it's interesting. I've had one where she could pick up something that was kind of a little private thing between me and Maxwell. It's a little treat I give him that no one knows about and I never even thought about talking about it. And then others were there trying to search the Internet to try to find, you know, what the heck, you know, with things to do for him. So it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting because you get different information from different people. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's just like human-to-human communication, I mean, a veterinarian trying to take a history on an animal, I'll have a husband and a wife in here and I'll get completely different answers, you know, and then they'll argue about it. Or a different veterinarian will get different answers because we ask different questions in different ways. You know, a person might be really quiet with one veterinarian and tell another veterinarian, and the animals are the same way. When I started practicing, immuni- I, I took an animal communication apprenticeship for this book. I, did, mm-hmm. I was skeptical prior to it. But now I practice it a little bit, and it's so funny because the animals' personalities really come out. Some are very chatty. Some want to just tell you everything before you even get the question out. Others have nothing <laughs> to say. I remember this two-year-old German Shepherd who was like a 17-year-old boy. He's like a teenage boy. You know, I'm like, how are you mm-hmm. doing today? Fine. What did you do today? Nothing. You know, <laughs> you know so, so different people are better at it, and different yeah. animals are better at communicating as well. So, no, that yeah. would make perfect sense. You know, I might my dog's the quiet type. For him to do a lot of talking would be unusual. So, you know, mm-hmm. I get it. I you have totally to know what that. to ask and really how to get him to talk about it. And you know, like a psychologist has to have that skill with people. So it takes it takes practice. Oh, well, and they're probably not used to people really understanding them. So if someone comes up and says, "Hey, you, what about this?" They're probably going, "What the heck?" <laughs> right. And I had one dog come up to me and talk. I was I was in my office. I had a new client come in. She set mm-hmm. down her things, left the dog in the room, and then went to the restroom. And I'm sitting in my chair, and the dog came up to me, and I said, "Hi, how are you?" And I heard in my head, "Oh, not so good." 
I said, Aww. what's the matter? She looked away. I said, what's the matter? She says, my stomach hurts and I don't feel well. I said, well, maybe we can help you. And she said, I don't think so. I think I'm dying. And it was one of, then I found out when the lady came back that it was one of those dogs that ate the malamine-tainted dog food. And, oh, and she no. died that, she looked good to me, but she died like a week later. So that was very unusual. I've not had any other animal just that I heard that clearly. Maybe that's the first of many. You never know. Yeah, you know? yeah. You'll have them lining up outside your door like Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe I don't, I don't hear well sometimes because I'm busy thinking about other things and, you know, there's so much psychobabble. You know, you mm-hmm. really have to kind of be quiet. It takes focus. It, it, you know, it's interesting how much focus that does take because I'm sure you're kind of probably going through your processes of going, of going okay, these are things you need to check and, you know, trying mm-hmm. to figure things out and, you know, to have an animal come up and start chatting with you. It's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and, um, you know, my, the woman that taught me, Kate Celisti, um, she's near Boulder, Colorado, mm-hmm. She uh, said, you know, your problem is you're always trying to fix everything. You're being like the veterinarian all the time. She says you need to be the animal's advocate. You need to be on their side so they trust you. And um, so, you know, someone who's a professional animal communicator would probably do better than I would. Well, it sounds like you're doing a fabulous job. Well, and it's so for, pe- for people that want to kind of learn more about you know, just the spirituality of, of animals. You know, they can, of course, get your book. Are you doing any workshops at this point, or is that something that will come up in the future? I don't have anything. I have some professional. Uh, I'm, I'm lecturing at a veterinary conference, but mm-hmm. I don't have anything for private people, you know, for non-professionals at this That's point. Yeah. But I may. I, there's a clairvoyant I mentioned in the book, and uh, we're talking about maybe doing something together, which would be kind of fun. Um, but my website is animusanimals.com. Animus mm-hmm. is the river that goes through Durango, where I live. But the word animus is the Latin root of the word animals. It means souls, breath, and life. And I like to use that word to describe the spiritual nature of animals because it's not associated with any particular religion. So that's the name of my business, Animus Animals. So animusanimals.com. And there's um, connect links to buy the book, and there's more information about me. You can email me from that website, and hopefully that'll help. All sorts of then connect with you if they're lucky enough to be in Colorado. Um, you, do you take new patients as far I as do. animals? <laughs> I do. And if somebody, you know, I, I practice traditional Chinese veterinary medicine now, and mm-hmm. there's a couple of websites people can go to if they're looking for someone who does that. There's www.tcvm for traditional Chinese veterinary medicine, tcvm.com. And then mm-hmm. there's IVAS, which is International Veterinary Acupuncture Society, IVAS.org. Perfect. Well, do you know, thank you so much, Dr. Carlene, for spending this time with us today. I mean, my goodness, your book is such an inspiration. I think it's going to help a lot of people just have more compassion, understand a little bit more about our little buddies that share this planet with us. Yes, thank you very much, Marianne. I appreciate you having me on the show. We are going to pause here for a quick break, and we'll be right back after these messages.
Internationally recognized and award-winning author Judy Goodman works and teaches outside the box of limited thinking. Working with people from every walk of life, her goal is to empower you to be the best you can be, no matter what the challenge is. Born with the gift of seeing beyond our normal vision, she has an extraordinary gift of working with every challenge. Teaching beyond conventional wisdom, her work is described as life-changing. Visit JudyGoodman.com. That's JudyGoodman.com. Have you ever had the sense that your thoughts might actually be doing something? Ancient secrets of manifesting have been masterfully revealed in the award-winning book Manifesting 123 by Ken Elliott. For the first time, the author's experiences and stories in this book describe exactly how your thoughts can create anything. You've been doing this all your life, but it's never been fully explained for you until now. Visit Manifesting123.com for more information today. Manifesting123.com Do you know that you can become a genius at any age? Do you know that you can change your life and create a brilliant life for yourself? Hi, I am Olympia LaPointe, an award-winning rocket scientist who you more than likely have seen on TED Talks, Impact Theory, and PBS. Check out my latest book, Answers Unleashed, The Science of Unleashing Your Brain's Power. Simply go to AnswersUnleashed.com books and check it out for yourself. You'll find the tools to help you create the life you've always wanted. The highly acclaimed and newly released book, The Hand Part Two by Lynn Van Prague Grattan, describes the journey between a psychic medium and a family who lost a son. Messages from Beyond Eternity's Gate is of love and healing. For more information, visit www.lynnvanprague-grattan.com. That's www.lynnvanprague-grattan.com. Welcome back to Moments with Marianne. I'm so delighted to be introducing our next guest, Holly Bellabuno, and she's here today to talk to us about her new book, An Herbalist Guide to Formulary. Now, Holly has been a community herbalist, apothecary director, and teacher for over two decades. She uses her inspiring lectures, books, curriculum, retreats, and workshops to empower people to think creatively and explore healing and success. So let's welcome to the show, Holly. Thanks. Glad to be here. It is such a pleasure to have you here. And my goodness, what a, this is such a inspirational and profound book. It's got so much in it. Thanks. Yeah, it's a um, pretty packed reference. Um, it covers a lot of territory. It covers um, digestive system and respiratory and reproductive and urinary and skin and neuro- neurological um, all about the herbs and herbal actions that are appropriate to each of those body systems and how you can use them uh, for health. So what started you, and just so we can have a little bit of an understanding about, you know, you as a person, like what started you on this path of becoming an herbalist? Um, around 22, 23 years ago, I started as a gardener. I was, and, uh, I was working on a landscaping crew, putting my way through, putting myself through um, graduate school in Boone, North Carolina, mm-hmm. and um, gardened 
love gardening, grew vegetables, worked at some historic inns and some really old, beautiful gardens, and also worked on a landscaping crew where the uh, leader of the crew was very interested in teaching us about the plants, not just having us be workers, but really learning about the plants themselves. And that's how I was introduced to edible plants and also to the use of plants as medicinals, and that's what really hooked me. So I opened up a very small, um, tiny little apothecary, a little retail store, and I made really fun herbal remedies like salves and tinctures and teas and vinegars um, and just had fun with it and had my children and was a young mother. Um, and then when I, my family and I moved from North Carolina to Martha's Vineyard, um, I was lucky enough in that I'd had quite a bit of experience and was an herbalist by that point. And when we moved to the vineyard, the local herbalist had just moved away. So I kind of slid into her spot and was able to continue my business and grow it. And it's been really um, successful and uh, fun. It sounds like it's been quite a journey. And obviously, you're on the right path. I mean, my goodness, this book was such a... um, It really just is filled with so many useful tips and, you know... When people come to you, do they come to you, like what's like the number one thing that they come to see you for? <laughs> uh, well, people used to come to me. For, I used to give consultations and work with people one-on-one, um, and I don't do that anymore. But when I did, and also when I ran my apothecary and I sold herbal medicines for specific illnesses or complaints, um, people would come to me for a few very specific things that were the most popular. One of the most popular was digestive issues. Uh, and that can be helped with herbs that are carminative or aromatic, like um, angelica, chamomile, ginger, mint. Um, a lot of your common kitchen herbs are very good digestive herbs. And another thing that people would come to me frequently for was eczema and psoriasis, so skin issues. Um, and herbs that really help that are um, antifungal herbs like calendula, Mm-hmm. And emollient herbs like violet or red clover or oats, and emollient means soothing. So one of the things in this book in particular, the Herbalist Guide to Formulary, is that I spell out for people exactly what these actions are. So actions are sedative or astringent or emollient um, or antibacterial. That's the action that the plant has. That's what it does. And once you know what a plant does, then you can apply it in all sorts of scenarios uh, in your health, different body systems. Well, and I know in your book, and, and, and this kind of is kind of breaking it down to the really simple because, I mean, I think, I mean, I, w- I would like to know, and I think a lot of other people do as well, but you talk about tonic. So what mm-hmm. is a tonic and why would we use it? So a tonic is an old-timey reference <laughs> to the idea of using a plant to tone or strengthen either an organ in your body, like your liver or your heart, um, or an entire body system, like your nervous system. So, for instance, a heart tonic would be the hawthorn tree, and we use the berries and the leaves and the twigs from the hawthorn tree to tone the heart. And what it can do, literally, especially if it's full of vitamins and minerals like calcium, is literally support the muscle itself with those minerals. And in a more general sense, a tonic eases or soothes that organ or organ system. So um, a tonic, you know, a lot of people have heard of spring tonics uh, that are mustardy or spicy that people will take in the 
late winter, early spring when mustard is coming up. And uh, it's an old-timey reference to a folk method of healing, spring cleaning or uh, liver cleansing. And we've adapted that word. We've changed it a little bit. So it's a little bit more uh, appropriate now to refer to any organ in the body uh, and supporting that one specific organ. And there are a lot of plants, surprisingly, that do that, that have an affinity for one organ. For instance, raspberry is a traditional tonic for the uterus. So pregnant women drink a lot of raspberry tea, partly because it's high in calcium and other minerals and partly because it really strengthens the uterus. Well, it's interesting how different aspects of a plant can help with different things. Did it really take you a long time um, to kind of discover this? Or, you know, because I'm kind of looking at your book, and gosh, it's got it's such a great reference, you know, for people to pick up. And if people are wanting to become herbalists, you know, it, is that kind of where they would start? Yeah, it's... um. This book in particular is a little bit more intermediate than a beginner book. My first book, The Essential Herbal for Natural Health, was a really good beginner guide. Uh, that was published by Shambhala in 2012, and it guided people through 13 herbs, so a really small number of herbs and all the versatile things you could do with them and how to make remedies with them. This book that just came out is a little bit more advanced, and it's really geared toward people who have a, uh, some sort of career path in the healing arts, uh, whether they're massage licenses, massage therapists, or they're yoga practitioners, or they're nurses, or they're chiropractors or midwives. Somehow they work with people in a healing capacity, and they want to integrate the knowledge of herbal medicine into what they currently do, which is becoming very popular uh, and a lot of these healing arts practitioners are having their clients ask them, look, I use herbs. How can I incorporate that with my yoga? Or how, you know, if you're my midwife, what herbs should I take? Or nurses in, in hospitals and regular allopathic doctor's offices are finding their patients are coming in taking ginkgo and St. John's wort and echinacea and expecting the nurses and the doctors to know about those herbs. And so this book is a step toward that, toward helping these practitioners integrate a little bit of herbal knowledge into their practice. And it correlates with my herb school um, because that's what I do too. I run uh, uh, an herbal medicine school. I have a distance program and I also do a two-week on-site intensive every summer here on Martha's Vineyard. And that is partly for beginners, for anyone who is interested in just learning about herbs but it's really geared toward people who already have some background in health or medicine and they want to apply herbal knowledge to what they already do. Well, and there's, I'm so, I agree with you 100% on that because I know when I go and see, you know, um, my Reiki practitioner or someone that does massage or what have you, I want to know like what kind of oils you're using, what kind of herbs, mm-hmm. how is it processed. And people really want to, um, as best as they can, get organic, you know, organic products when it comes mm-hmm. to personal health because we understand what the alternate is. They also want their doctors to be a little bit more well-versed in herbal medicine because, um, say, their doctor... Uh, suggests that they, you know, prescribes a certain medication for them and it turns out that medication is contraindicated with 
the St. John's wort that they're taking, mm-hmm. many doctors who aren't familiar with the herbs, they'll say, oh, we'll just stop taking the herb and go on this medication instead. And that can be problematic because you have to wean yourself off or sometimes you can balance the herb and the medication. Um, or sometimes people will get advice from others once they're on the medication and they'll start taking an herb and that's not a very good idea. So to have this kind of information available for um, for doctors and nurses and people in that profession, is um, it's new and it's effective and it's uh, timely. Um, and, and I think a lot of doctors and nurses are starting to open up to the benefits of working in tandem with their local herbalists and finding out more about these plants. Um, I think it's a very healthy choice because it, it, in the end, it only benefits their patients. It's a good thing for everyone. So having this kind of knowledge available um, is really helpful. And then this book, The Herbalist Guide to Formulary, what it does is I present a four-tier formula mm-hmm. because there's so many herbs out there. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of medicinal plants that you could choose from if you have a problem. You could go in so many different directions and people get a little overwhelmed. Well, why not throw the whole kitchen sink at it? You know, why not, why not give somebody 20 herbs if they could all help? And so what I do in this book is I say, you know, minimize the number of herbs that you're giving a person and do it in a way that there's a structure behind it, that there's a common sense approach and I call it the four-tier formula. So that helps narrow down what someone could use or might need in their formula, and it reduces the risk of having too much or having something harmful or having contraindications, and it allows the herbalist or the practitioner to be creative and innovative and pull from a variety of sources and really have a, a well-rounded formula that's geared toward a specific person. And then they can use that formula over and over and over again, that structure, to create formulas for other people for other problems. And I've had my students at my herb school tell me that it's a really um, helpful way to think about herbal medicine. There are lots of different ways to think about using herbs, and this is only one way, but it gives them a platform from which to expand their herbal knowledge and their working with clients. Yeah, I would agree with you about how some of it could be so confusing because I know when I got into um, oils, you know, they're like, oh, you can use this, you know, like lavender. You can use lavender oil for all these things. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then they've got other oils that are somewhat similar that you can use for the same thing. So you're like, well, what the heck do I use? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. And um, is, you know, if, if you throw the whole kitchen sink, if you take 20 herbs and you throw it at someone because those are all good for urinary tract infection, for instance. Do they really need all those 20 or can you narrow that down to um, some herbs that are really good key given what this person is going through? So maybe they have a urinary tract infection, but they also have a fever. Um, or maybe they have a UTI, but they also have stomach upset. And so figuring out which herbs help with those different symptoms can create a formula that is just right for that one person. Um, and knowing the actions of herbs uh, gives you that ability to think ahead and think, well, this would be good here and that would be good there. And, and it applies to essential oils as well, um, especially for topical use, um, because they can be used in so many different ways, but you don't want to overdo it and you want to have some restraint and you want to have some common sense. And so 
looking at herbal medicine with that little bit of scientific common sense um, is a complement to working with the magic of herbs and the beauty of plants and the aromatherapy and everything else that goes into herbal medicine. And it, it makes it a little bit more holistic. Yeah, it it gives it a little bit of a better approach. And you touched on something. I'd love for you to expand on it. It's actually one of the things I um, have listed here. In, in your book, you talk about the four-tier formula structure. And can mm-hmm. you briefly, like you know, like it's going to be brief, right? But can, <laughs> can, you, can you touch on that for us so that we yeah. can have an idea of what that means? Yeah, so a long time ago, in various cultures, people would um, people would have different ways of putting herbal medicines together. Um, traditional Chinese medicine, for instance, can have upwards of 60, 70, 80 different plants in a formula. That's a lot of plants to give a person for one illness. On the other end of the spectrum, there are the simplers. These are people who prefer just one plant. No matter what your illness is, you work with one plant and you can have it in different forms, but you know what that one plant does. And if there's a problem, if there's a allergic reaction, say, or, or digestive upset, you know it's that one plant. Whereas if you're working with a formula with 60 plants, you have no idea which one caused the problem. So my approach is more of a Western herbalist approach where we narrow that down and we use just a handful of plants for very specific reasons. And so my formula, I call it the four tier, and the first tier is your tonics. So these are herbs that are, above all, safe, and often they're edibles. They're really considered food, so they're nourishing. Mm -hmm. And they are in the largest... um, they're the largest part of, of your medicine. But, uh, some uh, examples of tonics are stinging nettles, um, hawthorn, as we mentioned, for the heart. Um, chamomile can be a tonic. Um, Would rosehip be one? Rosehip, uh, rose petal could be a tonic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Definitely rosehip um, is really high in vitamin C and can be uh, more of what the next tier is, tier two, which is a specific. And this is what most people think of first when they have a problem and they think, oh, what herb should I take? If, if an herb comes to mind, it's usually the tier two specific. It's what, what we could say is the magic bullet, even though this is not a magic bullet approach. Um, it's the herb that is given for a particular symptom. Um, so, for instance, with... Um, with, we were speaking about the heart earlier, so Hawthorne can be a tonic, but it can also be a specific for high blood pressure because it's hypotensive. It will lower blood pressure. So it could be used either as a Tier 1 tonic or it could be used as a Tier 2 specific. Um, the Tier 3 is a corollary herb, and by that it's, it's a support herb for something else that might be going on. So if you have someone who's dealing with anxiety, you're... Tier 2 specific might be, say, St. John's wort, Mm -hmm. Um, but the Tier 3 corollary, if their anxiety is making them nervous and it's upsetting their stomach and they have indigestion, maybe you want to give them spearmint as the Tier 3. So see how it just supports a different facet of what that person is going through. Um, And then Tier 4, there's not always a Tier 4 in your formula, but if there is, it can be, you can think of it as a vehicle. Um, and by that, I mean there are certain herbs that 
go to certain parts of your body. So say um, wasabi. When you eat something, when you eat a nori roll or a sushi with wasabi on it, mm-hmm. your, your nose lights up, right? Um, it, goes, it goes to my nose. A lot of people, it goes up in the head and it, you have this sinus opening with wasabi because it's spicy and you get this kind of rush in your, in your face. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of a, a vehicle. So if you had, um, and I don't usually use wasabi as a vehicle, but, but it's, it's an example. Um, it's a good example, though. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty clear, right? You can picture uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and most people who, if you're not allergic to wasabi, who have tried it, I mean, you know exactly what that feels like. Yeah, and so there are herbs that do that with other parts of your body. For instance, prickly ash. We use the bark of the prickly ash tree, and it's a diaphoretic. It will make your blood move to your extremities. So people with cold hands, cold feet, um, or arthritis in their extremities, stagnation, um, prickly ash is the vehicle. It would be a good tier four in a formula for somebody dealing with cold hands, cold feet, or arthritis. Um, Raspberry, we mentioned earlier, for pregnant ladies, that could be, you could think of it as a tier one tonic. Uh, It could be a tier two specific, or it could be the vehicle in tier four because it has what herbalists like to call as an affinity for the uterus. So it's just kind of a way of thinking about where the herb goes in the body and using that to your advantage when there's a problem in the body. Hmm. Well, and and that's kind of what we, I think more people are kind of gravitating towards that. And it's not to say to, you know, of course, if um, something has arisen and you need to consult a doctor, of course, do that. Yeah, it's not in replacement of seeing a doctor, but a lot Mm -hmm. of times people will look at what other things can I do in addition to help help me gain greater health. Mm Mm-hmm. And looking at the herbs this way, especially with this kind of formula, they're really a good support. They're a good complement to a healthy diet, to good exercise, to working with your healthcare providers in whatever other medium you choose, whether it's allopathic medicine or whatever. Um, it's a complementary alternative uh, method. A lot of people use it as their own method, um, but I also advocate, you know, common sense and that there are good. There's good in. Um, all the methods and picking and choosing what's right for each person, I think is really important. Um, and using the tonics in the formula is really key. So one thing that um, people sometimes get confused about is if you have a formula, the, the four tiers don't actually all have to be, say, in the same bottle. Uh, if you're taking um, raspberry leaf tea as your tonic, you can be drinking three or four cups of tea daily, but the rest of your formula, tiers two, three, and four, could be in a tincture. But in your mind, you know that they're all part of the same formula or protocol that is helping this person get through what they're getting through. Yeah. Kind of moving Does that make that, sense? Yeah, kind of moving that forward. It's kind of like if someone has uh, irritable bowel, I know you have like a different protocol that they can start using to help with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Um they can uh, pull the tier one out and drink a tea that's helpful. It could be a soothing um, mucilaginous tea like mallow. Um, and then they could be taking capsules of some other herbs that help with their specific symptoms. But thinking of it, you know, mentally, it's all in the same formula or protocol. So you still have tier one, tier two, tier three, and tier four. 
So with all the herbs that you've come across, what tends to be one of your favorites to use? Mm. Oh, that's an easy question. <laughs> elderberry <laughs> is definitely one of my favorites. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, I love elderberry. It's versatile. You can do so much with it. And I'm blessed here on Martha's Vineyard to have access to a friend's field where these big, beautiful elderberry trees grow. And so I've been able to harvest them year after year. And you can do so much with it. The flowers in the spring are um, they're emollient, so they're soothing. They're these beautiful, creamy white flowers, and they make a lovely lotion. They also make a tincture for fever. They're very mild, and so it makes a lovely children's remedy for children who are sick or have a cold or the flu. But the same flowers, if they're left on the plant, they'll turn into berries later in the fall, and you can go harvest the berries. And they are um, they are really good for coughs. Do you see a lot of cough syrups, elderberry cough syrup? Mm-hmm. Um, it's expectorant. It's um, nourishing. They're delicious. You can make pies and, and jams with them. And then the leaves, at any time of the season, any time the leaves are growing, you can harvest the leaf and chop it up and put it in an oil, uh, say olive oil or canola oil, as your first aid ointment oil. And then you add a little beeswax to that, and you've got a wonderful healing salve. And I usually combine my elderberry leaves with other vulnerary or other wound healing plants, such as plantain, mint, red clover, uh, yarrow is a wonderful one. All of these can go into the oil. They get steeped or infused in your oil for a certain length of time. And then when you strain those leaves out, you've got this really potent medicine that you can mix with beeswax and create a salve. So elderberry is definitely one of my favorites. And it seems to be making a big hit in a lot of, I know, um, I think it was Young Living's using that a lot in a lot of their anti-aging products. And Mm -hmm. so it's interesting. It's good in many ways because it's easy to identify. There are a couple Mm -hmm. of plants that look similar, but if you've got a good ID book, you can be very certain of what you're looking at. And it's prevalent. I mean, it grows in lots and lots of places. It's not an at-risk herb. And I would encourage people to get on the United Plant Savers website because they list at-risk and to-watch herbs that are in danger of extinction, um, which is a really good resource. It's a great organization. And elderberry is not one of those. So it's one that you can harvest with confidence and make so many things with it. If you're a family and you have small children, They can make teas with the elderflowers. They can dip them in batter and have fritters. Um, They can harvest the berries and and make dyes because it dyes your skin all purple. It's a really fun plant to work with. It has a lot of folklore behind it and a lot of magic and mystery. Um, But medicinally, it's a powerhouse. And you can, uh, I can't say treat or cure, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you can support a lot of um, illnesses and health issues with just that one plant. If that's all that you had access to, it's a great one as a beginner to get to know. Um, It makes everyone want to go plant one in their backyard. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Have you done that with with, uh, certain plants that, you know, you just like, gosh, I, I need to have this every year, and so you're making sure you plant them in your garden? Yeah, I actually have a large garden of medicinal herbs. Um, I used it for my apothecary when I ran uh, Vineyard Herbs Apothecary. I had it for 11 years, I believe. 
Um, and I harvested almost all the plants that went into my retail and wholesale product lines. Um, and now I use it as a teaching garden for my herb school. So my students come from all over the world and we gather in the summer and my garden is a, a key place where we spend a lot of time getting to know these plants and learning how to identify them and taste them and harvest them and how to make medicine, which is really great for healing arts professionals, such as nurses and doctors who don't have that hands-on plant experience. It's, it builds what they're learning through books and online about plant actions and chemistry to have that hands-on component um, is really good for anyone wanting to learn herbal medicine because you really understand if a plant is bitter, oh yeah, it really tastes bitter. Or if a plant is soothing and you can pound it and immediately put it on your skin, you feel that it's cooling and you recognize these actions are truly medicinal and there's a lot of worth in herbal medicine, uh, which I think is really important for allopathic practitioners to come to realize. Yeah, and and it's it's so great because I mean, this book is something that people can pick up at least you know start kind of diving into if they haven't already. It's I feel like it's kind of for somebody my speed where I've been interested in um, homeopathic and you know kind of an herbalist approach and and um, I've kind of dabbled in a little bit, but this kind of would uh, make it a little bit easier for me to kind of go, okay, well, what am I going to do if I want to do like a detox and you want to do liver detox? What would be the best best stuff to do? And then you mm-hmm. can- Yeah, it's organized by body system. So it makes mm-hmm. it a little easy to, you know, just pick it up when you need it. If you have, um, you know, a respiratory problem, a cough or something, you can go right to that chapter and see what are the different herbs used for wet cough, what are the herbs used for dry cough, what are the expectorants, what are cough suppressants, and it gives examples on how to put a formula together and which herbs really combine well um, and which will, you know, what will give you the most bang for your buck, really. Now, you said that you do workshops where people can come and learn a little bit more. Is that done over like a week period? What do those look like? So um, the two-week herbal intensive. Uh, that is offered on Martha's Vineyard is every June, and it's two weeks. So you come, and we all stay in what I call the Herbal Headquarters House, and we live together, and we do most of our workshops there, um, and we also take field trips around Martha's Vineyard, which is a beautiful place in the summer, and we'll go to the beach, and we'll explore woodland herbs and beach herbs and meadow herbs, and we'll talk about... Um, herbal actions, and we'll go through the four-tier formulary together. And then we'll also bring in other aspects of the business. So we'll talk about entrepreneurship, and a lot of the students want to start their own businesses. Or we'll talk about jurisprudence and what is the law behind herbal medicine? What can you say legally and what can you not? And how can you keep yourself safe? And how can you introduce your clients to this information uh, in a legal fashion? So it's a it's a pretty well-rounded course for people who want to incorporate herbal medicine into what they do, um, and also just for people who are interested in um, learning to support their own families in their own neighborhoods um, with herbs, with uh, without necessarily having a business, but learning what the herbs do and how to use them and how to grow them and harvest them in their own gardens. So it's uh, it's two weeks, and then. I also offer that as a distance program that's more beginner. So you can be anywhere and you can enroll at any time and you work out of your own house and uh, it's an email correspondence back and forth. 
Well, and, and it makes it a lot easier because I know when um, people get into a new modality, you know, and they really are embracing it, sometimes they can get a little gung-ho about how they discuss that. So having those guidelines, I think, is real important because, you know, they do want to make sure that they do things legally and not get themselves into any trouble. Mm-hmm. And then the business part of it is really a fun one for people. I think a lot of my students either they either have or want to have a product line um, mm-hmm. where they sell teas or, or tinctures or um, a combination of things, um, or they want to offer a service where they want to go into business for themselves as a practitioner of some sort. And so the entrepreneurship is really enticing and fulfilling for a lot of people because we do things as a group and we share ideas and we share resources. And that's a good uh, foothold for people who are ready to go on to the next step in their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, and so, Holly, where can people connect with you and be part of your community and learn more about not only your book, but also the workshops that we've been talking about? Mm-hmm. So they can go on the Internet to hollybellabono.com. Mm-hmm. and they'll find information about my speaking engagements because I um, I speak all over to conferences and universities. Uh, they can get any of my previous five books. So this, this one is number six. Um, they're all online, and they can purchase them right there, or they can get information about any upcoming retreats and workshops or the Herb School and enroll directly on the website. Okay. Well, you know, Holly, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Holly, for sharing your insights, wisdom, and knowledge in regards to an herbal's guide to formulary. We're at the end of our time today. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in. You've been listening to Moments with Marianne. And remember, make every moment count. In a single moment, your life can change. Moments with Marianne is a transformative hour that covers an endless array of topics with the best of the best. Her guests are leaders in their fields, ranging from inspirational authors, top industry leaders, and business and spiritual entrepreneurs. Each guest is gifted and a true visionary, a recognized leader in her own work. And while teaching others to develop, refocus, and grow, Marianne will bring the best guests and sometimes a special surprise. Don't miss this. You never know just which moment will change your life forever. Moments with Marianne airs every Thursday, Friday, and Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Make sure to tune in and visit momentswithmarianne.com for more information.